scripture reading this morning is from Job chapters 32 and 33. We've come to the section of the book that deals with Elihu, who speaks for the next six chapters. And this is probably the most debated part of the book, the question of how are we to understand Elihu? Is he, as he claims, a a prophet of God who is perfect in knowledge, or um, is he a false prophet, more like the friends and the Pharisees who uh, misunderstand God's suffering servants? I'm going to argue for the latter, but I want to be clear, this is an area where there is uh, diversity of opinion, and so this should not be an area that um, divides. Nevertheless, I think there are good reasons to view Elihu also as an enemy of the cross. So look at those this morning from Job 32 and 33, and then this afternoon, uh, Job 34 through 37. Come with me now, beginning at Job 32, verse 1. The words of Job have just ended in chapter 31, and it says, So these three men, that is, Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me. So I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips 
and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter. Else my maker would soon take me away. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth, my words come from my upright heart, my lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me, take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent. There is no iniquity in me. If he finds occasion against me, he counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out, which ones were not seen. Yet his soul, yes, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to the executioners. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him. and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men. It says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times of the man to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. At this point in the book, it's helpful to review where we've been. 
after Job's great trial in chapters 1 and 2. You remember his friends come at the very end of chapter 2 to mourn with him. Then after a week, Job cries out in chapter 3, one of the, the darkest chapters in all the Bible, where he wishes that he'd never been born. That lament in chapter 3 leads to a rebuke from his friend Eliphaz, and then a couple, chapter, a couple dozen chapters of debate between Job and the friends, the climax of which was chapter 31 that we heard last week, where Job avows his innocence. And it tells us now in 32 verse 1 that his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, ceased to answer him because they thought that Job was righteous in his own eyes. Then as they cease their answer, all of a sudden we're introduced to a new speaker, a young man named Elihu, who will speak for the next 160 verses about the same length as all of the other three friends combined. And the first thing that it tells us about him is that he is an angry young man. In fact, it tells us that four times in the space of just four verses. His wrath was aroused. His wrath was aroused. His wrath was aroused. And his wrath was aroused. If you're following along in the the ESV, it says he burned with anger. One commentator on Job, Norman Habel, says, Even before we know his name, we meet his anger. The prologue depicts Elihu as passionate and hot-headed. Another pastor, Bill Kynes, says, Our view of Elihu has to be influenced by the way he is portrayed by the biblical author, and immediately we see that he's angry. That he's speaking here out of his burning anger. And and not only that he's angry, but that he claims to speak for God. Even though he is young in years, verse 6, he believes that the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding and that he is wiser than the aged. You see that in verse 9. And so this is a young man who does not suffer from lack of self-esteem. In fact, in just this opening speech, he refers four times to to what he knows, his his opinion, his words, which he will declare. Bill Kynes says he may be young, but he is anything but reserved, reticent, or self-effacing. On the contrary, Elihu seems full of himself, even pompous, and his attitude toward Job downright patronizing. He says to him in 33 verse 1, listen to all my words. 33 verse 5, answer me if you can. He'll say at the end of his speech um, in, in 33 verse 31, listen to me, hold your peace and I will speak. Listen and I will teach you wisdom. All this from a young man who's addressing the greatest man in all the East, God's champion. As we begin to get the sense that the timidity and humility that he speaks of in 32 verses 6 and 7 may be pretended. When he says, I I was afraid to declare my opinion in the midst of the elders. Age should speak and, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. You get the impression he doesn't really mean that as the word but in verse 8 seems to undermine everything he's just said in verses 6 and 7 about his humble posture. As does his arrogance in a place like 
36, verse 4, where he says that he will fetch righteousness from afar and his words are not false, but one who is perfect in knowledge is with them. The same thing in 33, verse 3, my lips utter pure knowledge. That's Elihu's claim. That's Elihu's assessment of himself. The same man who has just told us that he is humble now tells us that he is perfect in knowledge, a prophet of God who does not err. Who nevertheless will fail to offer anything distinct from the wisdom of the friends and will actually offer conclusions that will be contradicted by God himself. C.J. Williams, a Job scholar who teaches at the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, says it is glaringly obvious that the substance of Elihu's speech is simply an echo of what the first three friends had already said. He still accuses Job of unrighteousness. He still parrots their tired old arguments about retribution. The only things truly unique about him are his audacious claims to know more than his elders and to be perfect in knowledge. He says if Elihu has any unique role beyond Job's other friends, he might more readily be seen as the last trick of Satan than the herald of God. Elihu did not mourn with Job on the ash heap at the beginning, as the other three friends did. But he angrily comes out of nowhere at the end of the book, showing no sympathy and claiming to be God's spokesman with unequaled wisdom. So this morning we'll look at Job chapters 32 and 33 and something of an introduction to and overview of Elihu's speeches. And then this afternoon we'll look at at, uh, chapters 34 through 37. I'm going to take these two sections together today as a lot of what we'll say this morning relates to what we'll look at later and vice versa. So let's look at Elihu's self-confident introduction, then his self-exalting solution. Those are our two points. First, his self-confident introduction, and then his self-exalting solution. Notice the word self in both of those. Elihu seems to have a lot to say about himself. Uh, One writer has said he says more about his own words than anyone else in the whole book, perhaps anyone else in the Bible. He spends a whole chapter and a half introducing himself and, and telling us how important what he's about to say is. At one point between verses 17 and 20, there, there's uh, 11 or 12 uh, personal pronouns, I, my, or me. One of the lessons that we can learn from Elihu is when we enter into the suffering of another, a a selfish preoccupation with, with our story and our advice and how helpful we are is unhelpful. It's unhelpful when you enter into the suffering of another to only talk about yourself. But that's what we see Elihu doing. He gives about 24 verses over two chapters of self introduction. First to the friends, and then in chapter 33, to Job. What he says first to the friends is that the aged are not always wise. That great men do not always possess understanding, but sometimes youth know better. Those like him who have the breath of the Almighty in them. He really believes that he has something important to say. He, he has identified the error of the older generation, and, and he believes that everyone must now listen to him. 
Bruce Waltke says, Elihu represents the younger generation who think they can correct the errors of their elders. He's learned a bit, enough to know the problems with with some of what they've said, and so he puts himself forward as the answer. I think there is application here to youthful zeal without knowledge. Some of you use the the family worship uh, Bible guide from Reformation Heritage, where it's got a a chapter or so of application on each each chapter in the Bible. On uh, Job 32, it says, Elihu demonstrates that youthful zeal can be quick to recognize problems without offering real solutions. His claim to have the answer was idealistic and expressed with a degree of pride. But he really doesn't end up giving an answer. He critiques the older generation in verses 11 to 16. He he assures us in verse 14 that he will not answer Job with their arguments. And then again in verses 17 to 22, he tells us how important his opinion is, which he's about to share. He says, I will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. It's interesting how he's, he's taking quite a while to introduce his opinion without actually offering it. He says in verse 18, I am full of words. And we say, yes. Yes, he is. He says, the spirit within me compels me. That, that word for spirit is the same word for wind, which elsewhere throughout the book of Job has negative connotation. Shall windy words have no end? Job asked in chapter 16. He complained in chapter 6 that that the friends had treated his own words as mere wind. And in chapter 8, Bildad said to Job, your words are like a strong wind. And so now when Elihu says he is full of words and the wind within him compels him, we're not necessarily to read that as a good thing. He says that he's full of wind and that his belly is about to burst actually seems that there's a bit of of comic irony here where I don't think he means it this way, but what he says is that his belly is full of of wind and he is about to burst forth. One commentator says, Elihu is flatulent with words. He, He says, verse 20, I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And not only does this cast him in a sort of comical light, making him out to be a fool... But notice how it also suggests a lack of control over his speech. This is a picture of someone who needs to speak rather than ought to speak. Someone who is driven by anger. As one writer says, Elihu is not in control, but his windy words are in the driver's seat. And his credibility is undermined by his own admission that he is speaking out of his own needs. Sometimes we speak more because we need to than others actually need to hear it. Oftentimes when we too, like Elihu, are driven by anger or by pride or by envy, and so we speak because we feel like we need to, not because others actually need us to. That's what we see here with Elihu, who then reminds us in verses 21 and 22 that he will not show partiality in what he speaks, nor will he flatter. And the reason is because he doesn't know how to. 
Eli was like the person who takes great pride in being blunt and, and telling it like it is. Irrigation, that's not necessarily a virtue. Nor is boasting in how blunt you are and how impartial and how you don't know how to flatter. Which, by the way, I think he does know how to flatter because he's been flattering himself for, for about 20 verses now. And he still has not gotten to the actual content of his speech. His introduction isn't even done yet. And, and we've already spanned the, the length of, of many of the friend's speeches. And now his introduction transitions in chapter 33. He's introduced himself to the friends. Now he introduces himself to Job. It's usually not a good sign when, when your introduction or when the preacher's introduction has multiple points. But that's what we have here, where he turns to Job, and now he says, Please, Job, hear my speech. He has told the friends why he's worth listening to. Now he tells Job. And the reason is because his words come from an upright heart, and his lips utter pure knowledge. It's interesting, by the way, he's going to critique Job for saying that he's upright, and yet he tells us that his words come from a heart that is upright. He says, the spirit and breath of the Almighty are in him. And then he speaks condescendingly to Job and says, if you can answer me, take your stand and set your words in order. And then he says, don't worry. I'm, I'm just, just like you before God. We're both formed out of clay. And so, Job, you don't need to be terrified of me. I'll come down to your level. That's basically what he says in, in, in 5, 6, and 7. Again, from this young man who is speaking to the greatest man in all the East, God's champion. And with that, his lengthy introduction comes to a close. Maybe just a couple points of application from, from his introduction before we turn to the, the solution that he offers Job in the rest of chapter 33. Doug O'Donnell, in his commentary on Job, points out a, a couple of flaws in Elihu in these chapters. Um, one is, is that he speaks from anger. Remember, that's the lens through which we're to read this. That's, that's what the author tells us in the little prologue in 32, 1 to 5. But it's anger that, as we'll see in a moment, leads him to slanderously accuse God's servant. And as we'll see this afternoon, to say things that are blatantly false, to accuse Job of drinking scorn like water, what we'll see in chapter 34, and of walking with wicked men, and of only praying to God for what Job might get from him and not for God himself. And so he angrily and patronizingly rebukes God's servants. And so we see here a warning about not letting our anger burn towards others like Elihu does and condemn those whom God has justified. Proverbs 29 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. I think we see a little glimpse of that in the speeches of Elihu. A particular of anger that is mixed with pride and youthful zeal. Another flaw in, in Elihu's um, speech is his incessant need to be heard. Kind of reminds us of the, the child in, in Sunday school or in, in school who, who always raises his hand and says, ooh, pick me, pick me. The hand is raised for every question, which is fine. 
But what's not is, is the constant, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. I, I must speak, says Elihu. I must speak so that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. But must he? He'll say several times, pay attention to me. Listen, what I have to say is worth hearing. Get out your pencil and paper and take some notes. As O'Donnell says, Elihu might have benefited from reading Proverbs 25.11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold. He says people treat long-windedness and excessive talking like it's a generic trait. It might be, but it might also be sin. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 10. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit, not a burning spirit, is a man of understanding. Proverbs 17. Or Proverbs 18. The fool delights in airing his own opinion. As we lie, who gives us a lesson in his anger and a lesson in his incessant need to be heard. There's obviously more we could say, but we should move on to the rest of, of chapter 33. After Elihu tells Job that he must listen to him and not be scared of him, he then misquotes Job in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 33, saying that Job has claimed to be without sin. But again, that's not what Job has said. He has admitted in Job 7, verse 21, and Job 13, verse 22, and Job 14, verse 17, that he's a sinner. He's spoken of the sins of his youth. He's, he said, Lord, reveal to me my sin. He, he's a man who understands that he's a sinner. He's a man who is, who is committed to blood sacrifice, to make atonement for sin. That's one of the first things we learn about him in chapter 1. He doesn't think that he's without sin, but merely maintains that some secret life of sin has not caused his suffering. Why, who says in verse 12, Job, you are not right. You are not righteous, which is actually a conclusion that will be directly overturned by the words of God in Job 42, who says he has spoken of him what is right. Or back in chapter 1, and chapter 2 calls him blameless and upright, says he fears God and shuns evil. We know that Elihu is not a prophet of God because his very conclusion is contradicted by God. And not just here, but this afternoon we'll see that, that he says that, Job, that God will not listen to Job and God will not answer him. And then just moments later, literally in the next verse, God does the very thing that Elihu said God would not do and answers Job. Elihu has become Job's accuser. And he says, verse 13, stop contending with him. Stop complaining about your suffering." And then he sort of repeats what Eliphaz said in chapter 5 about God's purposes in suffering and, and tells Job in verses 13 to 22 that God may actually be speaking to him in his suffering to turn him away from sin or to keep him from pride, that God may be chastening his servants, which we have to admit is sometimes true. C.S. Lewis famously said in The Problem of Pain that, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, and he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a dead world. 
And that's true. But again, not in the case of Job. God did not allow his ten children to die simply to keep Job from pride. That's not what's going on. And so once again, we see a lesson from Elihu about not pretending to know the secret will of God. That it's not always helpful to speculate about why God allowed suffering in a person's life or to tell them you know why he did. You don't. Bill Kine said we often do this. When a hurricane strikes, some Christian will declare it to be the judgment of God on that particular city. When an earthquake strikes, it's because God hates voodoo and uh, it strikes Haiti, it's because God hates voodoo and witchcraft. When a, a deadly virus attacks, it's seen as an expression of divine wrath for fill in the blank. It could be. We don't know, so beware of those who think they do. Beware of pat answers that sound pious but may be empty winds. Beware of Elihu, who sets himself up not only as the interpreter of Job's suffering, but in verses 23 to the end as Job's mediator who will justify him. There he speaks of a messenger for the man who is in pain, the man of verses 19 through 22, who sounds an awful lot like Job. There in 19 to 22, he speaks of a man whose flesh is wasting away. It says that you can see his his bones, which once you could not see. His soul is drawing near to the pit, and he is chastened with pain on his bed. It sounds like Job. And Elihu says, there is a messenger for him, a mediator, to show him the way to be upright. One who will be gracious to him and provide a ransom so that his flesh will be like the days of his youth and he will be restored to God. And isn't it interesting that Elihu has just said that he is the one who speaks the very words of God to Job. That he is God's spokesman. Verse 6, at least that's how the, the New King James renders it. And verse 32, that he will justify Job. And so the mediator who provides a ransom and restores Job to God by teaching him the way of uprightness, Elihu seems to understand to be himself. Who will bring about, verse 28, the redemption of Job's soul from going down to the pit, the salvation of Job from his sin, verse 27. Again, he misunderstands the the cause of Job's suffering. It's not his sin. And he misunderstands the cure. It's not him. This is why we know Elihu is not a prophet of God because he points Job not to the Redeemer his soul has been longing for, but to Elihu, the angry young man who has all the answers. He's the one, verse 30, who will bring Job's soul back from the pit and enlighten him with the light of life, who will justify him if Job will just listen to him, hold his peace, and let Elihu teach him wisdom. Beware of anyone who tries to set themselves up as the Messiah who will cure all your problems, who points you not to Christ but to themselves who presents themselves as a messenger from God, one among a thousand who will be your ransom. Beloved, there is only one mediator between God and man, and it's not Elihu. There is only one who will be your ransom, who will save your soul from the pit, and it's not Elihu. 
It's not your pastor. It's not your parent. It's not your counselor. Beware of anyone who tries to do for you what only Christ can, who points you to themselves instead of Christ, or who presents to you a method of salvation that consists, verse 23, of learning uprightness and simply putting away sin and praying to God not of looking to the mediator and redeemer Job has been speaking of in chapter 9 and in chapter 16 and in chapter 19, who will actually stand between him and God, having affinity with both as the God-man, and will plead Job's case in the courts of heaven as a, a son of man does his friend. That's the Savior Job has been longing for. The one we heard of in our assurance of pardon from Job 14. God will call out to him even after Job's death and desire him and seal his transgression in a bag and cover over his iniquity. You see, Job has been longing for a restored relationship with God through a divine yet human intermediary who will provide atonement for sin and restore Job to God even if not until after his suffering and death. But Elihu continues to hold out the promise of earthly prosperity on condition of repentance. He he has promised not to answer Job with the words of the friends, Job 32, 14, but he has failed in that. And given the same answers. And so left him without hope because our only hope is in the same Redeemer that Job has been longing for. The Redeemer who Job's life and Job's suffering have been pointing to. But again, Elihu misses that. He does not teach him wisdom, verse 33, because wisdom, as we saw a few weeks ago from Job 28 to 30, looks like a cross and a righteous man hanging on it. The one Job foreshadows. But Elihu misses that and so fails to teach him wisdom. As do you and I, any time our counsel is absent the cross, any time we point sufferers to ourselves instead of Jesus, any time we try to give them pat answers or insert ourselves into their situation and point them to us instead of Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man who gives his life as a ransom, and therefore it would be wise to point them to him. He who is our wisdom from God, verse 33 Our justification, verse 32. Our redemption, verse 28. Whose posture toward us is far different from Elihu's, but one of humility, one of grace. One that sounds an awful lot like what we sang from Psalm 131. Look to him in the midst of our suffering. May we look to him not only in the midst of our own suffering, but as we come alongside others who suffer. And may he get all the glory and not us. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for Christ, our mediator and messenger from heaven, the one among a thousand, the one among ten thousand, who is our ransom and redeems our life from the pit, who saves us from sin by going down to the pit and taking our sins on him by becoming the innocent sufferer whom Job foreshadows and with whom we are now united and may be called to suffer likewise. Lord, as we do and as we 
encourage one another in the midst of our suffering. We pray that you would make us mindful of that, that it may be neither chastening for sin nor teaching us not to be proud, but may have a greater gospel purpose as with Job. Help us, Lord, not to give counsel like Elihu, but like your son who is gentle and lowly in heart. Help us also not to burn with anger when we do not know all of the, the, the details of a situation. Elihu did not know what had happened in the courts of heaven in Job 1 and 2, and he, he comes in burning with anger and not knowing the full situation. Lord, how often is that not also the case with us? We pray that you would forgive us for all of the ways that we are like Elihu. We pray that you would forgive us for the, the way, Lord, that we lack humility and self-awareness. We're angry unjustly. We pray that you would direct our eyes to your son who makes atonement for all our sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.